Today's scripture reading is Galatians chapter 6, 6 through 18. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in your bulletin or on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. Let the one who is taught the word share all his good things with the teacher. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap. Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap discretion from the flesh. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. Let us not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. Look at what large letters I use to write as I, I use as I write to you in my own handwriting. Those who want to make a good impression in the flesh are the ones who would compel you to be circumcised, but only to avoid being persecuted for the, for the, cross, of, for the cross of Christ, I'm sorry. For even the circumcised don't keep the laws themselves, and yet they want you to be circumcised in order to boast about your flesh. But as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through the cross, and I to the world, for, bo for both circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing. What matters instead is a new creation. May peace come to all those who follow this standard, and mercy even to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, because I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Peace be with you. My name is Timothy Jones, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Sojourn Midtown. Well, a few weeks ago, our family took a trip to the Grand Canyon, and we did something that I'd never done before, and that is hiking down into the Grand Canyon. And so we started early in the morning on the trail, and part of our family stopped about two miles in. But my 16-year-old and I, we went to the furthest point. We decided we're going to the furthest point we can possibly go and make it back up in one day. And the views we had were breathtaking, absolutely beautiful, all the way down, hiking all the way down into the canyon. We went somewhere between three and four miles down into the canyon and started seeing signs that say, down is up is optional, up is not. Down is optional, up is not, which is a way of telling you, don't go any further if you're trying to make it back in the same day. And about that point, we started back and we started going up. And at first, my goodness, this is really easy. We kind of half jogged part of it all the way up there for that first half mile or so that we were going up. And then about a mile from the top, you start getting into these really steep switchbacks back and forth. And so we're going through that and it's harder and harder. There's something that you may not have realized, but going up is harder than going down. And so we're going through that. And, and at one point I Google on my phone, what happens if you don't make it to the top by nightfall? Because I kind of wanted to know this. I thought maybe there's a mule train that comes through and picks up all the stragglers or something. The results were not encouraging. They leave you there. You spend the night there if you do not make it up by nightfall. So I kept on going. And then I, I Googled a little bit later as we got through more and more of these, 
how many people each year die hiking the Grand Canyon? And so I Googled that. And that was not encouraging either. It's like about 20 or so people die each year, and at least a couple of people every year die because they walked off the edge of a cliff while looking at their phone. So I stopped Googling things at that point, and I put my phone up. And so I kept going up and up, further and further and further, and I realized at one point, we are hiking through the same places that I saw this morning, and they were such breathtaking points of beauty. They were amazing. I was in awe and wonder, but I'd gotten to a point that I was no longer noticing the beauty because it was taking all I had just to keep moving. You know what? Your life is like that sometimes. There are times in your life when you have a, have a hard time, you struggle to see the beauty because it is taking everything in you just to keep moving. You ever had those points in your life sometimes where it's really hard to see the beauty around you because of the fact it is taking everything in you just to keep moving. Sometimes it's because of disappointments that have struck you in your life. Sometimes it's because you're living with some really deep anxiety about what's coming next. Sometimes you just feel stuck and you don't know what to do. Sometimes you're just waiting. And if you're in that season of life, the holidays can be really hard. Because if you're in that season of life, you see all the beauty and all the lights and all the excitement around you, but you're not feeling it because it's hard to see the beauty when it's taking everything you've got just to keep moving. And some of you may have felt that already this morning. You heard some of the carols we sang. You see the decorations and you're looking around, you're like, I don't really belong here. I don't really belong here because of the fact that I'm just not feeling what we're doing this morning. I'm not feeling it. It's hard for you to see the beauty because it's taking all you have to keep moving. Some of you may be dreading this week. Some of you, maybe you're looking forward to everything this week, but some of you may have to face some family situations this week that are just going to be really hard. And you know it's going to be. And it's hard for you to see the beauty. Now, here's what I love the most. And I really mean that it is what I love the most about the Bible. It is this. That God doesn't provide us with wisdom only for those moments of breathtaking beauty and exhilaration. God, in his word, provides us with wisdom for the waiting, wisdom for the tired, wisdom for the broken, wisdom for the ordinary rhythms of life when you're bearing burdens. And that's what we find in the final paragraphs of Paul's letter to the Galatians. You see, in chapters one and two, we've got Paul absolutely on fire as he defends the gospel. And if we go to chapters three through five, you've got Paul defending the freedom that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then in chapter five, he goes on and explains for us the fruit of the spirit. And he, he paints this beautiful picture of the fruit of God's spirit in our lives. But Paul doesn't leave us there. Paul ends the book with wisdom for the burdened and for the weary, for those who are struggling to see the beauty because it's taking all they've got to keep moving. And here's where we see that in chapter six. We see it first in verse two, where he says to carry one another's burdens, bear one another's burdens. And he says in verse nine, don't give up. Be sure not to give up doing good. Now I want you to pause and think about that. 
And think about what good news it is that Paul here describes burdens and he describes being weary and wanting to give up in this last chapter. Because what that means is that Paul assumes that the church is full of people who have burdens and who feel like giving up. Do you realize that? He assumes that in the churches to which he is writing, there are people there who are bearing burdens and who just want to give up. And what that means is if you're a person who is burdened and weary, this is precisely the place where you belong. This is where you belong. You belong among the people of God. You belong in the church if you are a person who is weary and burdened and sometimes you just feel like giving up. This text, written by the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, gives us wisdom for those ordinary rhythms of life, wisdom for the times when it's hard to see the beauty. And what Paul calls us to do in this chapter, the remainder of this chapter, are three things. He wants us to live generous, to do goodness, and to write the gospel large. We see the first of those in verse six, where he says that the one who has taught the word, let him share all good things with the teacher. Now I want us to understand something. It's often in our lives difficult to be generous in the times when we are burdened. Because when we are burdened are the times when we often want to hold on tightly to what we have. We don't want to be generous in those moments. And what Paul is trying to let us see is to be generous even in those moments when you feel burdened. And that's why Paul reminds the sisters and the brothers in the Galatian churches not to give up on living generous lives. He says, give generously to those who teach the word in your church. And the fact is that good teaching that is faithful to the word of God is difficult work. And so if your church is teaching God's word faithfully, you are called to give generously to your church. Now here's the sad and immediate response we often have at that point. How much do I have to give? Is it a certain percentage? Is it a certain amount? How much do I have to give? What do I have to give to be considered generous enough? But that's the wrong question. You see, the right question is not, how much do I have to give? The right question is, whose pattern do I want to follow? What pattern do I want to follow? And if we look at Jesus as the pattern for our lives, we find a pattern of giving into the life of Jesus. And it's expressed very well in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Let's just think about this text for a little bit. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. That's our pattern. It's not about how much we give as an amount. It's about the pattern we're wanting to follow. And it's Jesus himself who being in very nature God did not consider his equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself. Do you see the pattern in Jesus? Jesus let go of divine privilege. He let go of the privileges of divine glory and gave himself for us. So what does that mean? That means if that is our pattern for life, our giving should be so generous 
that we have to let go of the lifestyle we could have enjoyed if we had kept it all for ourselves. And that's going to look different for every person. But that's what we're called to, to follow the pattern of generosity that we see in Jesus Christ. And the pattern of generosity that we see in Jesus Christ means that we let go of the lifestyle we could otherwise have lived by giving and generosity. That's crucial for us to understand. Because in our world, many people give to get something out of it, or they give to gain God's favor, or they give because of guilt. But he says, give because of the example of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis once wrote these words. He said, if our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot because our charitable expenditure excludes them. Now, that's going to look different in different families. For some of you, it may mean a round or two less of golf that you're playing. For some of you, it may mean you aren't eating at every restaurant that you want to eat at. For some of us, it means living maybe in a smaller house than we could have otherwise or not replacing that car. What is it going to look like in your life to be generous? And it's going to look different for each person, but let us be people who follow the example of Jesus, who gave up his privilege to be able to invest it in something greater, in a kingdom that will never end. And let us be those people in our lives. And Paul drives this point home with a text that I believe is one of the most misused texts in all of scripture where he says here, you will reap what you sow. God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. And the sad part is, is often this text is quoted almost like karma without reincarnation, okay? Where if something bad happens to you, then it's because you did something bad. If you do something good, good things will happen to you. But understand, we as Christians do not believe in karma at all in this life or in the next one because the cross crushes that. Because what the cross says is you get precisely what you do not deserve and could never deserve. That's what the cross does. We don't live by karma. We don't live by saying, I get out of life what I put into it. We say, I'll get out of life precisely what God has put into me and done for me. That's the truth as Christians that we must believe and we must trust. And sometimes this text about you reap what you sow is even twisted into what's often called the prosperity gospel, which is a misnomer because it doesn't bring you prosperity and it isn't the gospel. It's like grape nuts. They aren't grapes. They aren't nuts. It's just bad cereal. It's the same way with the prosperity gospel. It doesn't give you prosperity. It doesn't bring you the gospel. It's a lie at both levels. And the idea of the prosperity gospel is if you give a lot, God will make you wealthy. If you have enough faith, God will keep you from getting sick. If your health or your finances are a struggle, according to the prosperity gospel, then, then somehow you've done something wrong that God's getting you back for. But it's a lie. It is a lie. If you are in a season of life where it is difficult to see the beauty because everything in you, it's taking it all to keep moving, that lie can be devastating because you're living thinking, what did I do? that God is bringing this in my life. What did I do? It's a lie that destroys people. But the truth is, there are people who follow Jesus whose lives are torn apart by terrible tragedies and abuse. 
And there are people who abuse people and abuse power and yet become wealthy and ascend to the very highest places. And yes, all of us do things sometimes that lead to bad consequences. But not every bad circumstance in your life is because of a past failure. In fact, your present poverty doesn't mean you've done something wrong. And your present prosperity doesn't mean you did things right. It's crucial and important for us to understand that. So what is Paul saying? Well, the harvest that Paul is describing is not in this life. The harvest he is describing is at the end of time. He lets us know that by speaking here of eternal life that we receive. He says in chapter 6 and verse 8, because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh or decay or corruption or rottenness, we might say, from the flesh. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. If everything you do in your life is for your own security, the result is going to be decay. And everything in which you've invested your life, including you, will rot. But if you live generous, there is eternal life. Now, that doesn't mean that your generosity somehow earns eternal life. But generosity is an outward sign of God's work in the lives of those who have eternal life. It's a pattern of life that characterizes those who follow Christ and have received his generous gift. We don't give to gain God's favor. We give to God from the firm foundation of God's favor. And in those times when you're struggling to see the beauty because it takes all you have to keep moving, don't give up being generous because God has a plan for you that's bigger than this life. But then Paul in verse 10 goes even further from living generous to doing goodness and Paul says in chapter 6 and verse 10, to work for the good of all. Work for the good of all. Do you hear what Paul is saying right there? We should not only proclaim the gospel in our neighborhoods and in the nations, we should be as Christians working for the good of our neighborhoods and the nations. And this is a crucial truth for the church today to hear. Because there are those who would like to say, all the church ought to be doing is preaching the gospel. We shouldn't be working in any way for racial justice or economic justice. Those are off the table. All you need to do in the church is preach the gospel. And yet, and I remember when I was about 12 years old, that I, I was in a church and our family was in a very fundamentalist church at that time. It was about the time when the song, We Are the World, if any of you remember that, came out. So there was a lot of talk about poverty in Ethiopia and other places. And there was a missionary came to our church from Ethiopia. And someone who had heard this, seen this, said to this missionary, well, what are you doing to help feed people as part of what you're doing? And I'll never forget his answer, and I'll never forget it, because it utterly turned me against the churches I was in for years. And it was this. We're not there to feed people. We're just there to make sure they're saved before they die. That was his attitude. We're only about preaching the gospel. That's all we're about. We're not about doing good for people. Yes, we should proclaim the gospel. Yes, that is primary. But look at this letter. It is brimming with the gospel. It is 
filled to the brim with this idea of gospel and freedom. And yet, even though it's brimming with the richness of the gospel, Paul says, work for the good of all. And notice the logic of the text. The reason we work for the good of all is precisely because God will make all things right at the end of time. Therefore, work for the good of all. You see, the same gospel that guarantees your eternal life in the future sets you free to work for the good of your neighborhood and the nations here and now. Precisely because the gospel guarantees a glorious future, we can seek the good of the world here and now without worrying what others think or what we will get out of it. And honestly, in this, the good of all is actually the hardest part, that all. If Paul had said the good of most, we could navigate that really well, couldn't we? If he said the good of some, we would be really good. If he said the good of people like you, that would have worked really well, but he doesn't say any of those things. Paul says the good of all. It's so easy to be selective, to try to work for the lives of the unborn, which we should, and to forget or neglect to seek to change the patterns of poverty and disempowerment of women that drive mothers to see abortion as their only option in the first place. It's very easy for us to say people who are born here will do good for them, but not people who are born there. That's easy. But this says the good of all. It is easy to say I'll work for the good of those who are poor and who have a clean criminal record, but not for those who have been incarcerated. It's easy to do that. But it says work for the good of all. No exceptions. No exceptions to this. Work for the good of all. Part of our witness to the world is how we work for good within the world. And this has been part of the Christian tradition from the very beginning. I've been reading recently from the middle of the second century this, this kind of thing that's been written called the passing of Peregrinus. And it's this thing from the middle of the second century by a man named Lucian of Samosata, who was like a stand-up comedian of the second century. And it's all about mocking Christians. That's what he's doing. This is like a century or so after Paul writes his letters and there's a tractate being written, sent out, mocking Christians. But let me tell you what he mocks Christians for. He says they are so gullible they can get anybody, they can, anybody can go in and get them to help them. They'll help anybody. They're such fools. They will help anyone. That's what they were making fun of Christians for in the second century. Why? Because they're doing it. Because they were doing it. Because people in the culture as a whole knew that Christians did good for all and they made fun of them for it. I don't know that that's what we're being mocked for today, but it should be. It should be what we are mocked for. If we're mocked for anything, let it be the good that we do. Let it be the good. And then Paul writes further, especially, particularly for those who belong to the household of faith. This is adoption language here. This is saying we're making a household in the church in which people who the world would never have thought of placing together, we're putting all of them together in this place and turning them into a family. And this should be a place where no one is hungry or lonely or afraid 
because we're family. Do good for all, particularly those who are part of the household of faith. And then Paul has this odd little phrase in chapter 6 and verse 11. Look at what large letters I use as I write to you in my own handwriting. And people have all sorts of theories about what's happening here, that Paul had bad eyesight, he had injured hands. One theory is even that he had survived crucifixion at some point and it was referring to that. I don't think any of those is the case. I think Paul takes over the writing. He probably has a scribe that is writing, copying this down. And Paul takes over at that point and says, look, I'm gonna start writing from this point. And Paul writes it large because it is important to him. He writes the gospel large, both literally and figuratively. And when he writes this gospel large, he writes a gospel that is centered in the cross. You see, he says, those false teachers who keep telling you you have to be circumcised and become Jewish before you can actually trust Jesus and truly follow Jesus, all those He says, the reason they're doing that is because of the fact they want to escape persecution. Now, you've got to understand that even though the Jewish people were a marginalized people in their culture, the Romans, by longstanding practice, allowed the Jews to be exempted from worshiping the Roman gods. So he's saying, look, here's what they want. If you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you just stop worshiping the Roman gods, there are going to be social consequences for you if you do that. But if you become a Jew first and then ally with the Christians, you're scot-free. He said, these, these people who are persecuting you, that's what they want. They want to escape the shame of the cross. They want to escape the shame and the potential persecution and the social disenfranchisement of their culture. That's what they're trying to make happen. That's what they're trying for. And that's why Paul says in verse 14 that the cross is his boast. The cross, with all its shame, is the place where I put my hope and I make my boast. And God has made through this, he has made me a new creation. You see, because he's a new creation, we no longer have to play by the world's rules. We no longer have to be subject to the world's way of looking at things and thinking about things because we are a new creation, part of a kingdom that is yet to come and even now has already dawned. We are crucified to the world. And as a result of this, of God working in Jesus this way, the true Israel, the true people of God, in verse 16 it lets us know, isn't those who follow the Old Testament laws, isn't those who are descended from Abraham, It's everyone who follows the Jesus in whom all the Old Testament is fulfilled. He says, you are the Israel of God, the Israel of God. Jews and Gentiles together, every race, every people together. You are the Israel of God. And I love this last command in verse 17. From now on, let no one cause me trouble. All right, guys, stop it. We're done. Let no one cause me any more trouble about this. And he says, the reason is I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. You know what authenticates what I've declared? It's that I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. What it seems to be saying here 
is all of those scars that I have, physical, emotional, the scars in body and soul that I have for following Jesus. He says, those are like tattoos that show to the person to whom I belong. I am marked with Jesus himself. I've been marked with him and I look at my scars and I am reminded of the one to whom I belong. When you're in those moments in your life where you just can't see the beauty because it takes everything you have to keep moving, if you can't look anywhere else, look at your scars, look at your brokenness in your life, look at those. Maybe they're physical, maybe they're emotional, maybe they're spiritual. And see in your scars the presence of the one who knows your pain through the cross. Remember, remember. Remember how he did not leave you where you were then, and he will not leave you where you are now. And if you cannot see beauty anywhere else, see the beauty of Christ in your brokenness and your scars, and remember that you serve a Christ who entered into the burdens of this life in the flesh of an infant. You serve a Christ who knew hunger and prejudice and poverty, and he did not stay a baby, but rather he grew, and 30 years of silence, remember, passed between the song of the angels at his birth and the first miracle of his ministry. And remember how at the end of his earthly ministry, he ascended the hill of the skull where there was no beauty and he could not keep moving. And someone else had to carry his cross. And there he died. But God did not abandon him there. And God will not abandon you where you are if God raised him from the dead. And he did. And if you have trusted Christ, God will not forget you. He will raise you up. Remember that. Those are the truths that Paul remembered as he wrote the gospel large. So what does all this mean? for your life. What do you do with this? Let me give you three simple things to take home. Number one, live generous here. This is your family. Live generously here. This is your family. Do good, he says, especially in the household of faith. And that's not merely money. That's part of it, but that's not all it is. It's also your attention are you known among those who know you well as a person who's always distracted and running off to the next thing? Or are you known as somebody who gives your full attention as a generous gift to those around you? It's about the generosity and the goodness of having space in our lives. Are you so busy that you can't make time for anybody who needs you? We're not being generous with our time sometimes. Could it be that you are not generous in your forgiveness? That there are people maybe in here right now that you need to go over to at some point and say, look, I really blew it there and I'm really sorry, it's on me. Will you forgive me? That's generosity and goodness that we give to one another as a family. But here's the deal, we can't live generously if we don't know each other. 
And it is so easy to come to church week by week by week and stare up here at the stage and assume that what happens here is actually what matters most of all. But this is not a concert, brothers and sisters. This is not a conference. This is a community and we are family. And what happens on stage is often not nearly as important as what happens out there among you. Understand this. Meditate on this. If someone is broken during the service, gather around them, be family, pray for them. That matters. You walking across the aisle to pray with somebody who's broken and ask forgiveness or to give support, that may matter far more than anything I do on this stage. You walking across to slip a gift card into the hand of somebody you know they're struggling financially. That matters. That matters. Be walking over and maybe letting it be known your own struggles. To say to someone honestly, we're really struggling to pay our bills this month. What do I do? It's okay. We're family. Be generous with one another. And it may be you just need to admit what's going on deep in you. For you to be willing and able to say to someone, there is a darkness gnawing at me right now that I just can't seem to get out of. I need help. I'm broken. It may be that you need to go to somebody and say, I just need a family for the holidays. I'm going to be alone. And I need help. Do it. And that may matter far more than anything that happens on this stage. Because it's not a conference up here. It's not a concert. It's a community. And we are family. Secondly, write the gospel large. Because the cross, the cross is your hope. You may wonder, where is your hope? Do you know there's a pretty easy way for you to tell where your hope is? Let me tell you what it is. When you are in that social situation where you feel like you need to prove yourself, where you need to be accepted, where you need to show how great you are. When you're in that social situation that I need to impress somebody, what is it that you start talking about? That's your hope. It may be your job. It may be your education. It may be your spouse. It may be your children. I don't know what it is. But what you begin talking about in that time when you want people to be impressed by you, that is your hope. Because whatever you boast about is what you hope in. What is it you boast about? That's what you're hoping in. And what Paul says here is that his only boast is the cross. That's my only boast. That's all that makes me who I am. I've been crucified to the world. I no longer have to play by the world's rules of impressing people. Where is your hope at? Is it in how you can perform for others? Or is it in the cross of Jesus Christ? Hear this. Your value is secure once and for all in the cross of Christ if you have trusted in him. It's done. Your value is settled and it is infinite. That settles your value. That settles God's perception of you. You don't have to play by the rules 
of saying, I've got to impress people to be worth something. You already are through Christ and through his cross. Lastly, remember to do good to all because there's a celebration that's coming at the end. There's a celebration coming, brothers and sisters, a kingdom coming that has already dawned in Jesus Christ. And sometimes when we see things around us that are good things that we need to do to do good to all, sometimes we're skeptical. What if I give somebody something and they misuse what I gave them? Or we just feel helpless. I can't change it all. There's too many different things broken in the world. I can't change it. And that paralyzes us because we forget that there is a celebration of perfect justice coming. And what we do in this life imperfectly, God will at the end do perfectly. So we do what we can by God's power and his spirit. But we know that there's a celebration coming when God makes all things right and new. I don't have to worry about balancing every justice scale in this life. I don't have to worry about what if somebody misuses what I do. I don't have to worry about I can't change everything because God will one day do perfectly what I do imperfectly. Remember that when you cannot see the beauty because it's taking everything in you just to keep moving. Well, in the end, we did make it to the top of the Grand Canyon. We got there. We made it. And we celebrated at the end of the journey with ice cream, which isn't exactly eternal life, but it's pretty close. It really is. But as I looked out on the valley, as I looked out on the Grand Canyon and the sun was setting, I saw that place in a whole different way because I had been through the valley. And brothers and sisters, there's a time that's coming in your life, maybe in this world, maybe in the next, but you will look back and celebrate and you'll look back and it will look better because you went through the valley. It will look better and more beautiful because the valleys that you went through and you'll see a new beauty in your pain, your brokenness, your burdens as you went through the valley. Well, each week, we look forward to that by looking back to the cross of Jesus Christ. What we do in the Lord's Supper each week is that we remember what Jesus did in the past and we look forward to when we will share this meal with him in the future, remembering that on the night when he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he said, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, drink this in remembrance of me. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we invite you to take this meal and in that to look forward to the beauty and the wonder of what is yet to come that God is working even now in ways we cannot see. If you're not sure if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I would beg you this day to receive Jesus Christ. He is the only way that you may be made right with God. Trust in Jesus. Cling to him. If you aren't sure how to do that or what that even means, we're going to have people over here in the prayer chapel. There are pastors in the back. We would love 
to speak with you about this. We want you to know the Christ who suffered in your place. The way that we partake of communion at Sojourn is there'll be stations in the front and the back. Come up, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the juice or the wine. The wine is marked by twine. There's gluten-free and alcohol-free communion to my left, your right. We ask that if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, come and partake of this meal. Let's pray.